As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined uh, by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, good to be here. And uh, we're really excited to say we've got another guest joining us this week. Uh, that's Sophie Guthrie-Kumer um, from Choices. Uh, you're going to explain a little bit more about Choices in a second. But um, Sophie, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are first? Yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to be here too. Um, so I'm Sophie. I am the director of Choices. Uh, we're a charity that supports women and their families through pregnancy crisis. We will talk about that a bit. Um, I'm also a trained counsellor. Yeah, and I'm really excited to have this conversation because I, in terms of full disclosure, I'm also a trustee of Choices, uh, a charity which I've been really delighted to be part of and and supporting for over 20 years. And it's something I passionately believe in. So it's great that Sophie's here to to talk about it. Yeah, really exciting. Um, We thought it would be a fascinating conversation to hear a bit more about your work at Choices, Sophie, the kind of philosophy behind Mm -hmm. it. Um, as it's, I think it's a perspective in in this often fraught conversation around uh, women, pregnancy, abortion that is often missed. So could we start by saying, could you could just has, tell us a bit more detail about what Choices is, how long has it been going, where, whereabouts you guys are in the country? Sure. Um, so we are a charity that's just over 20 years old. Um, initially was set up to respond to rather high teenage pregnancy rates in Islington. So we're based in North London in the borough of Islington and for a long time we've been called Choices Islington. Um, But we're sort of recognising that we're meeting the needs of women from across London actually now more and more. So we're calling ourselves just Choices. Um, What we do is we support people who are facing an unplanned pregnancy, um, help them to sort of think through the situation that they're in, the decision that they're making, what choice they're going to make. Um, and we then support them whatever they choose. Um, initially, Choices was set up by a group of Christians, I think they're kind of um, from churches together around Islington, and we continue to have that very strong Christian foundation to what we do. So we call ourselves a constructive Christian response to the dilemma of unplanned pregnancy and abortion. Hmm. And what does that Christian ethos mean in terms of kind of day to day? Does that inform what you tell clients? Does it inform who you hire for the jobs? That's a really good question. Um, So what it does is it informs our response to clients. Um, We say that we meet our clients with compassion, care and respect because we believe that that's what we're offered um, by God. So it doesn't, you know, we're open to clients of all faiths and none. Um, we won't force religion or faith onto anyone. Um, if the client brings it into the room, we'll certainly um, make space for it. Um, but what it does is really that we we create this environment in which we provide love and empathy and care and um, respect for, for, for the women, mostly that come to us. Obviously, some men do as well, but it's mostly women. Um, it, it, it does mean that for key posts in the organisation, um, we do hire Christians um, because we believe that prayer is foundational to what we do, um, praying for each other, for the clients that we see. Um, but, you know, we are also very inclusive. So not all, not all of our volunteers, for instance, not all of our staff have all been Christians um, because, yes, yeah, this is a this is a service that we offer to, to everyone. So would you like to tell us a bit more about what a typical day 
is like what 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 actually happens there i know you've got a mm-hmm. a small um office space on on the caledonian road in in north london but mm-hmm. what actually goes on there yeah um well because we're a small charity we've got sort of seven or so members of staff we work with a number of volunteers 30 or so volunteers but um everyone's part time so Imagine a very small charity in which a typical day is obviously very different from day to day. From one day to the next, you could be moving furniture around and, you know, um, yes, yeah, sort of sorting through clothes, baby clothes and equipment, which um, I'll explain a bit in a second. Um, or, you know, meeting with clients and really working through some tough issues. So it can be a whole mix of things in a typical day. But I guess in a sort of more serious way of answering that question, really a typical day at Choices is, responding to as i say mostly women who will get in touch with us and ask for support around the issue of pregnancy crisis so we have one to two women a week who'll get in touch facing an unplanned pregnancy sometimes that will be a man who's getting in touch on behalf of a partner sometimes we'll see couples together um but they definitely have people who feel like they're in crisis because they're facing this huge decision suddenly that you know the point is that they're facing it and they didn't know that they were going to be it wasn't something they planned um so responding to those clients as quickly as we can and as compassionately as we can is kind of a key part of what we'll do in a typical day and so how do they find you you? the (laughs) these um you know here i am i'm in london i discover to Mm. my shock that i'm pregnant i'm not sure what to do what happens Mm -hmm. next how do i find you yeah so we have um a lot of good connections with gps in the nhs and gps will often um send people our way will refer people our way but often more often than not i think most people will find us online so they'll do a search for you know i'm I'm pregnant what do i do um will find us that way some people um have come to us in the past from abortion clinics as well Um, if they really, really want to think things through. But generally, people who come from abortion clinics might well be coming for our post-abortion counselling services. So, I mean, what that shows, isn't it, is that actually Choices is is quite well respected and trusted uh, by Hmm. healthcare professionals, by other people. Um, I mean, how how has that worked? Yeah, I mean, that that is the case, I hope. (laughs) It's certainly something we work really hard on. And in fact, one of the services that we offer is in prisons. And there we work with the NHS very closely and um, work with the kind of mental health teams in women's prisons where we're offering um, post-abortion and child separation counselling services. Um, so we are kind of building relationships with, with healthcare professionals. I think in general, they're very pleased to know that we're offering what we're offering. I mean, women's mental health around this issue is a very sort of serious issue. And I think that they're really... Um, pleased to note that you know that we do offer this service um and and i think you know increasingly they trust that what we're doing is we're offering offering a professional service um all of our counselors are qualified you know we're all trained um and we work with volunteers volunteer counselors who are on a training placement which is a very kind of well known way of um you know it's, it's very well recognized that people will be on a placement so it's not kind of not as though we're working with people who aren't trained and, and, you know, they're all trained in-house as well. So I think there's more and more kind of recognition that what we're offering is of a professional standard. And if I was a, an unpanned pregnancy client and I've I've got in touch on the phone and I've set up a meeting with one of your counsellors, um, I mean, obviously every session is going to look a little different, but what kind of things would be talked about? Is there like a, do you have a system, a structure, a, a kind of playbook you work through or, or is it completely kind of client-led? Yeah, Um these are good questions. We we do we're very as an organisation we're trauma informed but also responsive to the client. Those are the two sort of ways that we work. If you see what I mean. Um, so we will be led by the client, but we also do have a series of tools that we'll offer them. So um, if you were to get in touch, what you would be met by, um, and these are our kind of standards for how we would respond, is you would be met with compassion, care, and respect. You know, you'd be treated with respect. Um, and offered an appointment as quickly as you needed it. Um, but also the sense of kind of calm around that. I think the thing that we would recognise is that often when people are in crisis, they feel unable to um, think it often. You know, you'll kind of have a have a bit of a kind of uh, crisis response. And, and often what we need to do is, is help clients to kind of really come down a bit, as it were, um, and to feel more able to engage, you know, body and mind. 
um, in, the, in the conversation. So what we do is we'll, we'll help them to sort of think through, well, what's my head thinking in this situation and what's my heart feeling? You know, basically what am I thinking? What am I feeling in this situation? So that they're able to respond to the situation that they're in and make the decision that they make, knowing that all of them has been engaged, that they're not kind of, you know, thinking, oh, actually, I ought to do X, but, but really what I'm feeling is I want to do Y. That they're trying to kind of integrate the two of those things um, and, and be honest, I guess, about what they're really thinking and feeling in the situation that they're in. Hmm. And so the intent is Does not that to... that help? S- I mean, there, there that- are some other tools. Sorry, no, no, that's really interesting. Uh, and I guess I'm just trying to get inside. Obviously, I've got no experience of this myself. Uh, is, mm-hmm. And the intent, therefore, is not to steer a client to a particular outcome, but to let them make the best choice for them, fully informed of, yeah. quote unquote, the different choices that they have available. Yeah, definitely that. Um, so our approach is is very respectful of the client and respectful of the fact that obviously, I mean, legally, you know, they have a choice. It's not our role to tell them what to do. Um, it is our role to help them to really connect with what they are thinking and feeling so that they can make a decision, as, as you say, as in an informed way as possible. Um, and, and one of the ways of doing that is to really sort of think through, well, actually, what do I feel like I'm going to gain and what do I feel like I'm going to lose by each of the decisions in front of me? And one thing we should say as well is that, you know, when someone comes facing an unplanned pregnancy, obviously they have three options. You know, one is to continue with the pregnancy. The other is, second is to have an abortion, but the third would be to consider adoption. Um, and so we sort of really want to lay it as open as possible. You know, what, what are your, you know, these are your options. What are you thinking about them? What do you feel about them? What do you feel would sit best with you? How, how do you kind of connect with each of them? Um, so yes, it's very non-directed. Our values are to be kind of honest with our clients, to be open, to be transparent, but non-directive and respectful of them as well um, to really provide an opportunity for them to think things through I think more often than not in you know there's a sort of idea that oh I'm facing an unplanned pregnancy I ought to I ought to go ahead and do this you know too often clients face some form of coercion and what we want to do and because we believe that this is what God offers us is to be a non-coercive voice in their lives to really offer them a chance to you know think it through for themselves one of the things I find very interesting is is that because uh, Choices is known as a faith-based organisation, although providing mm. professional standard counselling, that actually you, you do have a steady stream of people who come from non-Christian faiths, don't you? Um, so, yeah. um, and, and, and that's one of the fascinating things, that, that uh, people, for instance, people who come from a Muslim faith or Hindu background actually often they want to talk about the religious aspects the faith aspects of their decisions I mean is that is that right is that your experience yeah absolutely that's right and I would say the majority of us I mean we have clients as you say from all faiths um, and there's not one dominant one Uh, sometimes we have people get in touch who go to a Christian church but more often than not actually you know people are coming from all sorts of direct um, backgrounds um, and, and yes, some people will come and also say, I feel spiritual. You know, I don't necessarily connect with a faith, but I do feel spiritual. And so are connecting with the fact that they're pregnant on that level. And what they do when they're in conversation with us is have a chance to actually, you know, say that out loud. Um, where I think often there can be a kind of dominant, you know, um, maybe view that you don't connect with that part of you when you're making this decision because that makes the decision too difficult as it were um so yeah we we have people from all faiths and 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 just sort of people who also feel like they have kind of faith in inverted commas but it's it's not really got a name and presumably you've had um cases where you know people who were considering having an abortion actually having discussed all this they decide actually i'm going to continue the pregnancy and um and a baby is born and and yet they may be in a quite difficult circumstances I mean what happens then yeah yeah I mean that is often the case I think you know we do recognize that for our clients you know we're seeing the people for whom there is a real crisis and so it's not as though either decision is easy or any any decision that they take is easy whatever they face there's going to be a loss basically you choose one thing you lose the other thing that you didn't choose and we do really want to kind of sit with them and have that empathy in the unplanned pregnancy session that you know we recognize there's no easy way out here um and as you say for some that might be that actually going ahead with a pregnancy is incredibly difficult you know we're seeing people who often are struggling financially might be struggling with their mental health 
I worked with someone not so long ago who had a really serious ADHD diagnosis as well as, you know, very unsupportive family, um, uh, financially not particularly stable and so on. But actually she'd had two abortions before and, and they'd really, really seriously um, caused her distress and, and that she had felt, you know, her mental health had plummeted basically after both of them and in, in a really serious way and she'd suffered psychosis and so on. So it was a really, you know, difficult and complex um, situation that she was in. And so very brave of her to to consider continuing the pregnancy. And she did get in touch a couple of months later and say, I'm so pleased I've, I've done that. You know, I'm pregnant. I'm really excited. Um, but the situation was not easy. And, and actually, we needed to kind of work with, you know, a perinatal mental health team in the NHS to, to make sure that she had the right support um, because it yeah was a very sort of complex situation that she was in um so yes it is it, it is it is the case that you know a number of people who will go ahead with a pregnancy are still in difficult situation and actually require further support which and we so do what kind of support them. then mm-hmm. can choices offer it for people who are going ahead with the pregnancy or do you just wash your yeah. hands of them at that point <laughs> no i think one of the kind of really important developments that um did come out of you know when i say we started as a charity facing kind of trying to deal with this problem of unplanned pregnancy in teenagers but what grew out of that was actually this is an issue for everyone it's not just teens that face this um and and one of the most important things that we do offer is that support whatever they choose but that might mean that they choose to continue with the pregnancy but are really struggling financially so we have a baby clothes and equipment service um that just can take some of that financial pressure off people we can just give them you know buggies clothes um maternity wear anything really from naught to five years of the the child's life um just to help them with that but then we also offer i mean we're predominantly a counseling organization although we do offer this practical support so you know we offer counseling for women who are pregnant um and that's a sort of recent development because out of lockdown a number of people came with an unplanned pregnancy i mean unplanned pregnancy rates went up really quite quickly during lockdown and we really were recognizing that a lot of people were struggling with the idea of having an abortion but then really would need counseling support to work through some of their kind of relationship issues for instance as they went into becoming parents um so we offer counseling we offer befriending which is a bit more practical kind of a bit more kind of coaching style um and then the kind of baby clothes and equipment as well so no we don't we don't wash our hands of them (laughs) whatever they choose and I guess the other side of that coin is is you would have clients who come for an unplanned pregnancy um, counselling, they choose to, to go ahead with an abortion. Um, and some of those mm-hmm. clients, uh, you, you are finding, I guess, that, that after the abortion, they're experiencing difficulties. And, and was that was that the kind of birth of your post-abortion support counselling work? Yeah, I th- yes, um, absolutely. I think the post-abortion counselling work is 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 really does come out of the fact that we recognize that um, it can be a decision that women will make that might stay with them for years. And that's not to say that every woman faces this, um, but there are some who do face sort of serious distress, you know, after having an abortion and find it very hard, but also in a society that doesn't really recognize that you might find it hard or doesn't make a lot of space for women to say that they found it hard. And so actually it's, it's part of that compassionate response. It's part of that empathy that says, oh, we see and hear that this has been a really hard experience for you and you need some space to process that and you need somewhere to find some form of resolution and healing from it. So, I yeah, mean, this that's, is ob- that's how the counselling was born. Mm. Sorry, Sophie, but this is obviously a very controversial area because I know, you know, I've been in debates with uh, pro-abortion groups who say that really this idea of, of distress and, and post-abortion mm. syndrome and so on, it's a myth created by, you know, pro-life activists. Um, what's your personal experience of uh, what are the sort of symptoms which people may have uh, following an abortion? Yeah. yeah, I mean, as I've said before, you know, choices will see the women who refer themselves to us or are referred by a professional. So we, we only see a section. So we can't say that every woman experiences this, but it certainly for the women we've seen, it most definitely isn't a myth, you know, and I think it needs to be, these are stories that need to be heard and respected that for a significant portion of women, it feels like a very difficult experience to have gone through and something that they need and would like space to process and I had a client once who um, said that she part of why she was finding it so hard to process is that she felt like a bad feminist 
because she'd been, you know, pro-choice and would never have criticised anyone who'd had an abortion. She never would have expected it for herself. I don't think many women sort of plan to have one. Um, but after she had one, she felt like she couldn't actually grieve. You know, she couldn't kind of process the fact that she felt like she'd lost something because she felt like that would make her a bad feminist. So she was caught in this horrible double bind of, you know, I am feeling pain. I'm finding it hard to process the fact that I'm feeling pain, but also I feel really terrible about myself for wanting to process it because actually I didn't feel that women should, you know, make space for it. So, I mean, there are countless women that, you know, we see um, every year um, who really are struggling with it and, and need somewhere to process it. And that doesn't mean that we're saying that all women feel that way, but certainly a significant number do. And again, obviously this will vary from, from client to client, but are there some common tools or, or, or kind of journeys that you try and lead someone on to, as they try to come to terms with their decision to have an abortion? Yeah, yeah. So um, I suppose what we do is we, as you say, we will follow the client and, you know, whatever they want to process and help them to sort of focus on those things. But there are some key emotions that I suppose would come up in any sort of therapeutic support, but certainly come up in post-abortion support you know, where women might want to be processing emotions such as anger. Um, they might want to be working through, you know, the stages of grief, which would include kind of denial as well as anger, um, guilt. Um, often feelings of shame might come up. Um, people often want to work through, you know, relationships that they've had and how they make decisions. You know, why did I make the decision that I made? You know, feelings of of that sort of guilt about like oh why did I think that then why did part of me feel like that was the right thing to do whereas another part of me now feels so terrible about it um so yeah there are sort of those are some of the kind of standard feelings I suppose that people might want to work through and and certainly a sense of loss you know a sense of grief and um having lost something and I think that's often one that can really surprise some women that um that there is a feeling of of loss because again I think society we're told that actually maybe you wouldn't feel that and it should be relatively easy to go ahead and have a termination but um yeah for these women and, i guess it, it didn't feel so easy is it possible for some women to find some kind of healing or resolution i mean it you it might think you know there's nothing you can do i mean i, I made this decision i now feel terrible about it mm. but it's it's happened there's nothing i can do yeah and i suppose you know every everyone is different and how they process it is, is going to be different but we sometimes use the image of kind of a bit of weaving, you know, weaving the threads of our life together, which, again, any form of counselling or therapy will help you to do is sort of integrate your experiences and become OK with them. But certainly that's something that we've seen is, is people writing into us afterwards or giving us their feedback at the end saying, you know, I never thought I'd be able to process this, but actually now I feel like I've been able to. I feel like I'm able to move on with my life. You know, we're trying to help women to feel more resilient afterwards and feel like they have processed and feel like they can face the future with hope. And that's certainly something that we see again and again. Every woman's story is different and they will all process differently, I suppose. And it's really important that we don't put on them the fact that they need to have felt X, Y and Z and gone through these all these emotions and processed it in a way and neatly tied it up and gone on their way. Because, you know, for everyone, it will be different. But there certainly is hope in that we do see women again and again feeling like they've had a chance to kind of move through some of these feelings and then be able to kind of re-thread you know their lives and, and and accept themselves as well accept yeah I made this decision and maybe I feel differently about it now than I did then but I'm, I'm okay now you know and I and I can move forward. I find this particularly fascinating this part of Choices' work because the stereotype I think in, in in our society, at least in British society, is that the kind of church or Christian spaces would be the last place that someone could be kind of honest and vulnerable about having had an abortion in the past. And that there's an expectation, mm. I think, from many people, Christian or otherwise, that if they do share that part of their story, they're going to be met with sh with shaming or, or, or silencing. And yet, y you seem to be saying that actually a critical part of of your kind of Christian vocation is 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 creating a space for women to to talk about something something like something as difficult as an abortion. Yeah, yeah, and I think I really like the way you put it just then. Actually, that idea of Christian vocation, because I was thinking the other day, it's it's almost a kind of prophetic act, you know, of trying to meet people the way that we believe that Jesus does. You know, you see in the Gospels again and again that Jesus meets people who are sort of on the outside of society who might be seen. And judged by society to have done something wrong 
um, you know, I'm thinking of kind of tax collectors and prostitutes and the woman caught in the act of adultery. And, and again and again, we see Jesus meet those people with compassion and respect, you know, um, and like with the woman caught in the act of adultery, sort of asking people around them, well, who here, who here is able to throw a stone at this woman? Um, and although he is able to judge, he doesn't, you know, he tells her to, to sin no more and go on her way. And I, I think it's trying to kind of offer what we're trying to do is offer that we don't want to kind of be on a on a polarized spectrum of we think this or you think that and you know but more trying to meet each individual where they actually are with the same love that we see jesus meeting us with and saying you know there is no space there should be no space for shame here actually there should be a space for acceptance for receiving grace um and i think it's really sad if if a church is a place where you can't you know, share the pain that you've been through and seek to move forward and, and find healing and find grace. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that is that's exactly what we're trying to do. And his choices alone, uh, when it was set up, was it kind of a, a pilot project or was there a kind of a broader movement? Are there similar kind of charities in other parts of the country that, that you can't reach? Yeah, there are definitely um, lots of other little charities um, initially, there was a movement of pregnancy centres around around the country, and, and many of these have continued as small charities um, who are offering similar service. Um, as you say, you know, we kind of work in a small area of North London. We are growing. We're meeting more women from across London, um, but we don't. We're not national, um, and so there are other places where where women and men can go for this sort of support. Um, obviously, it's always worth kind of finding out in advance, I suppose, what they're you know how how they approach this issue how they how they're going to respond to you but yeah there are certainly others that do the same sort of thing same work i'm certainly conscious of the fact that <clears throat> there are uh, there seems to be a growing interest in this work in the uk and i know a number of churches have um planned to set up uh, some kind of um, a similar kind of crisis pregnancy center and and i i think it's true to say i've noticed they have subtly different philosophies don't they some are very overt about the fact mm-hmm. that they're coming from a Christian perspective. Some are much more cautious about um, any uh, Christian or faith-based perspective. And uh, and I suppose inevitably that's right. They're all independent charities. They all have a, a, a unique um, kind of zeitgeist. But I, I think it's, it is a, a profoundly positive um, development, a, a practical, compassionate, authentically Christian response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the faith part of it is important, um, and it, and as I say, it sort of is is sort of offering in a way a, a perspective that you wouldn't get in in society. You know, elsewhere you might not get in in healthcare. I mean, um, I, I've worked with a woman who had a Catholic faith who came for post-abortion counselling, um, and she had terminated quite late on because of a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, and was really struggling, and certainly from a Catholic perspective, um, was struggling with with um, with what she had, you know, the decision that she'd made. But she'd been told by all of her healthcare professionals that she really ought to do that to make that decision. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, I don't know how far they actually said you must do this, but I think that was very strongly the kind of impression that she got. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, what I'm saying is, I suppose the kind of being able to make space for her where her faith and her perspective was understood is quite different to what is being offered elsewhere through kind of secular services, I guess. So um, I, th- I think the faith perspective is quite important in this. And it seems that choices and similar centres are offering almost a, almost a third way because I, there's, there are, as you'll know, you know, some, some of the abortion providers themselves have counselling services and, and, you know, I'm not going to ask you to, to give your impression of those, but they're clearly coming from a perspective. And then there are some kind of overtly, explicitly di- directive pro-life counselling services, which are mm. entirely aiming to steer people away from abortions. And it seems to me that there's something mm. really valuable in having Christians pursuing a third way, a different perspective, saying that we're here to provide, as yeah. you said, kind of compassion, non-directive giving you the full range of all your choices and all your alternatives and the love of Jesus and the grace and the space to work through that at your own speed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I probably did say before, but there's been a a survey recently, a Comrade survey, um, that actually the BBC commissioned, I think, showing that 50% of women face reproductive coercion. And I suppose 
yeah, we are trying to offer this space actually that is precisely not non-coercive and um, abortion centres, yeah, they do offer counselling, but I guess what women find difficult is even if it's not directive, you know, I don't, I don't think it specifically is, I'm not saying that, but I think women find, or the ones that at least have told us this, have found that it still doesn't feel independent, you know, so it doesn't feel like an independent counselling service because it's attached to the abortion providing um, service. Um, but then equally, as you say, if, if anywhere is being incredibly directive, you know, from a kind of Christian perspective as well, that still isn't very respectful of the fact that that these women do have a choice, you know. And certainly if they're coming from a perspective themselves, which isn't a faith perspective, it's not going to make sense to them at all to kind of um, push, you know, one one view or another onto them, as well as being another coercive voice in their lives. Um, and, and finally, I suppose, you know, any you know, any therapist is going to have to abide by an ethical standard, which means that you don't tell people what to do. You know, you have to kind of work with them where they're at. So we are seeking to kind of, yeah, steer into that kind of that space. Hmm. And just lastly, then we're running, running out of time. But if, if someone listening to them was, was encouraged and inspired by what they heard um, and they wanted to kind of volunteer or see if they could support um, a similar pregnancy centre near them, what, what would be the best way of trying to find them? Well, um, I think probably the best place to go is anywhere else in the country. I mean, we, we'd obviously always uh, always welcome any support and, and uh, any type of support in London. But anywhere else around the country, I think the Pregnancy Centres Network is, is your first port of call. Um, uh, so this is UK-wide. Um, but, um, yeah, the Pregnancy Centres Network would be able to kind of direct you to your local centre, would be able to have that conversation. Um, where is there somewhere else that's doing this sort of work that I'd like to get involved in? Um yeah, so I'd look them up. Yeah, and I would just suggest a Google search wherever you are for um, mm. crisis pregnancy centres and <clears throat> to to find out uh, what's available in your area. And uh, and maybe if there isn't anything in your area and you feel moved, you know, I, I would really encourage people to, to think maybe this is something we could think of uh, creating. There are, this is a, a worldwide issue and, and here is mm. a an authentically... Um, uh, compassionate, sensitive and, and Christian way of responding. Absolutely. Well, we're so grateful for you, Sophie, coming to kind of share a bit more of your insight and your reflections on, on the work of choices and pregnancy centres more generally. It's been a really uh, fascinating conversation. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Before we kind of resume our conversation on this, I guess it's it's worth noting that that the question of abortion is 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 a personal and painful topic for many many people, including many Christians, and no doubt people listening to this show itself. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I think I want to start right at the beginning and say, whenever we talk about abortion, we have to recognise the extraordinary pain that that so many people and men as well as women. Uh, have experienced and continue experience because of 
uh, unwanted pregnancies because of abortion and because of decisions made. And our first responsibility, if you like, is to try and empathise. Uh, I sometimes say that we should talk about these issues not with um, rhetoric and judgment and confidence in our voices, but with tears in our eyes. And um, if if there are people who are deeply traumatised by this episode who and who are listening, uh, sorry. If there are people who are deeply traumatised by the issue of abortion and listening to this podcast, you know, I would say, please reach out and find someone to receive help from. There are people who can help, um, in- including um, organisations like Choices that we heard about last week. Um, so this is a kind of follow-on part two episode to to, to what we talked about last week, uh, where we we had on Sophie Guthrie Kumar from from Choices. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's going to really inform and, and kind of point our, our conversation today. So really recommend you pausing this and, and going back to have a listen to that first. Um, and Sophie was really explaining and giving a flavour of what her her charity Choices is about. Um, what it what it's for and it's kind of poli- it's kind of philosophy and, and policy of of trying to offer a kind of compassionate christian non-judgmental non-directive response uh to to both kind of crisis unplanned pregnancies but also people who is experiencing uh distress are after having an abortion um uh, john you, you've been a trustee of choices for many years you're kind of very intimately involved in their work passionate about their work i could even say um what what why why did you kind of throw your weight behind that as an institution yeah well perhaps if i can just give a little bit of my own sort of pilgrimage on this uh about this very contested and, and problematic issue about abortion um in the uk the abortion act came in in 1967 and um the interesting thing is at the time um many christian doctors including many people connected with the christian medical fellowship saw that as a very positive development. Uh, they, they saw the development of the Abortion Act. And that was because of the, the terrible reality of backstreet abortion. Um, and uh, many doctors were aware, were seeing patients who had either died or were permanently damaged or left infertile because of botched backstreet abortions. And they... As, as many as Christians were deeply moved by this and wanted to have a compassionate response. And and they felt that um, the Abortion Act, which was framed in a very uh, medical way, as a way that two doctors in good faith believed that an abortion would lead to less harm, uh, w- would minimise risks either to the woman's health, her mental health, or to existing children and so on. I remember at the time there was a lot of worry about uh, families with, uh, you know, where there were six, seven, eight, nine, ten children, and then, you know, and the mother was just getting pregnant every year, and lo and behold, she's pregnant again, and the children don't have enough resources, and, and surely this will be a compassionate thing uh, to, uh, under these extreme circumstances, uh, for a, a, a legalised abortion. So it was framed uh, in very medical, paternalistic um, way. And and, um, and and although some Christians were strongly opposed to it, there were a significant group of Christian doctors who felt this was actually a compassionate response. Hmm. And fascinatingly, I've actually um, listened to a, a podcast, which um, another podcast which sketched out the history of of kind of evangelical Christians in the in the states as a response to abortions and, and interestingly contrary to what we might kind of come to assume now again actually before the 1970s it wasn't a universal kind of um, shibboleth of faith that that all Christians are, are are strongly opposed to abortion it was a more contested nuanced issue and there were as you say there were Christians evangelicals even who were saying actually maybe maybe permitting some abortions is is the most kind of compassionate way forward yeah, and I remember at the time that many Christian peoples talked about the lesser of two evils. And uh, that was the way you tried to work out, you know, this was a very difficult situation. Yes, uh, it was an evil if you destroyed the life of the unborn baby, but, but actually it would be even greater evil if that baby survived and the damage that would be caused by that new life. And so with a heavy heart, you chose the lesser of two evils. And... Um, there was a very prominent 
a gynaecologist at the time, a Christian man called Rex Gardner, and he wrote a book called Abortion. Um, it came out in the early 70s, and um, I read it as a medical student, and I remember at the time being very struck and moved and, and persuaded by his arguments. But it's interesting, going back and rereading it, I reread it recently, uh, I'm shocked by how the sort of paternalism and the patriarchy that that it breeds. Um, so here's this male gynaecologist and, and saying, well, we have a real dilemma here. Here's a pregnant woman, you know, and, and he says, you know, is she in any fit state? And, and this is a quote. He says, the patient, the pregnant woman, drugged as she is with the hormones of pregnancy, is in no fit state to decide objectively. And and so he goes on and says, ultimately, it's doctors who have to decide what's in this poor woman's best interests. And that was the way that the original um, UK Abortion Act was framed. And at the time, I um, was was quite persuaded by that argument as a, as a very young medical student. And it was only later on that in my own journey, I became increasingly aware. And part of this was through John Stott's influence that of... of the very, very strong evidence in the scriptures and in orthodox Christian moral teaching that that destroying that the life of the unborn baby was something very significant, and that the the deliberate destruction of this uh, vulnerable human life was actually something that Christianity spoke about very very forcefully. And I remember actually reading about the early Christian church and the and the way that. You know, abortion was very common at the time of Christ, and 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 it was practiced across the Roman Empire. But the the Christians um, were actively involved in trying to rescue uh, babies, uh, and um, e including abandoned newborn babies. And I remember at the time being very struck by that and thinking, actually, this is a much more practical, compassionate Christian response. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned how polarised and how sensitive this, this area is. And it's obviously something that people like Sophie and Christians working in it have to be very careful about how they uh, manoeuvre and navigate uh, through through this area. Because having come from, you know, the, the same act, Abortion Act of 67 is still in force in the UK here, but it's it's really been transformed, I think, the kind of secular conversation from a kind of maybe tragic necessity for a small number of women to save them from from backstreet abortions or, or severe harm and it's and it's unintentionally by the kind of drafters of the law it's become effectively abortion on demand up to 24 weeks and then if the child has any kind of disability or abnormality up to term uh, and it's been reframed as not a, a paternalistic kind of beneficent act by the state uh, or by the male gynecological profession on behalf of these hormone adult women but it's been twisted into something in which is a an act of feminist empowerment and it's about and and the, the kind of core argument is that well of course women should have the choice to end a pregnancy it's their body it's their choice yeah i mean i noticed you use the word twisted which is uh, perhaps <laughs> a, an emotive term but it's certainly true and i think you can trace this to the 1980s with the rise of feminism um, that there was this sense of it's my body, it's my choice uh, and how how dare you, anybody, but particularly a paternalistic doctor, tell me what I can and cannot do with my body. And, and I think it's very striking the way that it's now become almost like an article of faith of feminism um, that that the the right to free abortion on demand is, is unquestionable it's uh, from a feminist point of view it seems that um it, it although there are a small number of feminists who've who've raised voices about against this and and have actually in fact argued that free that free abortion actually acts against women's interests it allows them to be coerced and manipulated by predatory males um Nonetheless, it, I think it remains the case, isn't it, that, that um, from mainstream feminist perspective, free abortion uh, is seen as an absolutely central part of, of, of protecting women's interests. Yes, I mean, it was very telling, wasn't it? One of the, one of the stories that Sophie 
told last week was as a client that she saw who was who was ashamed almost to be feeling difficulties and, and, and distress after she'd had an abortion because she felt like it was an anti-feminist thing to do but she had so she'd grown up in a in a milieu which had told her that that um every woman uh, you know it was an act of empowerment to have the choice to have an abortion and therefore to feel guilt or shame or distress or grief after the abortion was an anti-feminist act and it was it was an act of paternalism and patriarchy and of course you know i i think i would argue it isn't and and probably sophie would would say this the same but it's fascinating that that is so deep in the culture now that that some women almost feel bad towards themselves for feeling bad yeah and i was very struck by the scenes not so long ago in ireland when uh, when the law was changed from a very restrictive uh, law on abortion to a much more liberal abortion law and what you saw was packed you know of women just celebrating with with party hats and balloons and uh, shouting for joy and this is a wonderful day and and then you stand back and you say you know doesn't it seem the slightest bit strange that what what these women are celebrating is the right to destroy their own unborn babies and of course part of the problem in this um in this area, and it's, it's a point I often make when I'm speaking about it in public, is that there is no neutral language. As, as soon as we have selected how we talk about this issue, we've already got some kind of prior moral commitment. So if we talk about the fetus, we're using deliberately neutral biological language, which distances us from this entity in the womb. Whereas if I talk about the unborn baby, as I just did then, immediately I am using language which implies the, the humanity, the, um, the unique significance of this growing human being in the womb. And, and so as soon as we use language, uh, we are already uh, becoming polarised. Yes, I mean, it's, I think I've always thought it was incredibly like sociologically interesting that the two the, the names chosen by each side of this debate are both pro pro-life or pro-choice and obviously that's not only saying trying to claim we are the side arguing for life who is against life and the other says well, we're the side for choice who is against choice but technically no no one wants to be anti anything everyone wants to be pro something and then similarly you know that as you say the language is either i'm killing my unborn baby or I'm terminating a pregnancy, which doesn't even use the language of the fetus. It talks about the pregnancy, and all I'm doing is ending, ending a pregnancy. Uh, I just, yeah, as you say, it's it's such a contested issue that that people, and I'll, I'll put my hand up and say, including myself, are uh, you know, it's you hesitate to talk about it, particularly as a Christian, particularly as someone who is, you know, like you, is personally does believe it's it's wrong to to end to, to to kill an unborn child or to terminate a pregnancy uh you, you hesitate to raise your head above the parapet because it's so so ferocious yeah and and you know one of the uh fascinating areas you see this in is in the antenatal ultrasound clinic you know which is something that the nhs a service it provides uh for for all pregnant women and and what happens is as a pregnant woman comes to be and it's usually an ultrasonographer a trained professional who's doing the ultrasound scan uh, the most important thing that the ultrasound sonographer needs to work out is whether this is a wanted pregnancy or not or whether it, it's possible that there's going to be an abortion um, because depending on which category this pregnancy falls into the way that the language that the um, that the ultrasonography uses is completely different. So, for instance, if this is a wanted child, if it's clear, you know, that the the mother is absolutely delighted and can't wait to see the pictures of her baby, what happens is the screen is turned towards the mother, and the ultrasonographer says, "Oh, look, yeah, I can see his there's his little arm, and oh yeah, and he looks just like dad." You know, there's all this sort of uh, family kind of um, folksy. Um, fun and isn't it fun and look at there's your little baby and so on whereas if it's um, exactly the same pregnancy but now 
um, it's clear that this is an unwanted pregnancy. The language that the screen is turned away from the mother and the language is now very neutral and, and dispassionate. Yes, well, it appears the pregnancy is about 14 weeks gestation and it appears to be growing normally and I can't see any abnormalities. And it, it's that very neutral, dispassionate tone. And yet the being in the womb is exactly the same. Hmm. Yes, indeed. It's um, almost Orwellian, you might say, the kind of way that language shapes how we think about things. Um, is not, as you say, it's not just a neutral descriptor, but people use language to to guide and shape the conversation and maybe even their own thoughts. And the interesting thing is that the ultrasound professional would, would not see that that is problematic at all. They would say, I am simply being sensitive, compassionate, nuanced, uh, patient-centred. Um, the fact that I adopt these totally different personas and responses is is simply being sensitive in this very conflicted area. I think another thing I want to point out is that in the traditional way in which the pro-life versus pro-choice conflict or uh, debate, even culture wars, in in the way it is it is um, promoted is is the acceptance that the interests of the mother and the interests of the fetus the unborn baby are opposite whatever is in the interest of the mother is against the fetus and the fetus is 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 damaging the interest of the mother it's it it's framed as a almost like warfare you know it is is competing interests competing rights who should we decide is it the rights of the fetus or is it the rights of the mother and I, I I would want to argue that's a very distorted and bizarre way of thinking of a human pregnancy I mean in fact, I think the truth is that the interests of the fetus and the interests of the mother are aligned. Whatever is good for the fetus is good for the mother. Whatever is good for the mother is good for the fetus. And our task is to try to ensure that both the interests of both these uh, people are, are supported and, and, it's, and help them to see how supporting both is in the interests of both. And that's the philosophy, I suppose, which Sophie was underlining that kind of lies behind choices, which is this kind of refusing to pick a side in the culture war, but actually saying we're going to to sit with women and by default, by proxy, their unborn children and talk through in a non-coercive, non-judgmental, nuanced way, look at in the round, in the holistic sense, everyone's interests and try and, and talk through and come to a, or help the woman come to a conclusion. Um let's just put our cards on the table here a lot of people listening will be like us instinctively kind of pro-life in terms of the kind of ethics of the issue how how would you respond to people who who are who are listening to what we've said and listen to sophie last week and just don't get it that say well look if you think abortion is wrong how can you stand by and non-directively counsel a woman uh, who might end up having an abortion yeah, and it's a really important question. And I, can I just sort of slightly divert the question and talk about my own experience as a Christian doctor working in the National Health Service? Because um, this was an issue I personally faced repeatedly. I was working as a specialist neonatologist, a specialist in the care of newborn babies at a major university centre where abortions were being carried out and were being offered to women because of abnormalities of the fetus if it was if you know detailed scanning showed that a that an unborn baby a fetus had uh, significant abnormalities and that it would be legal to carry out an abortion for that reason uh, then the woman would be offered an abortion and and quite often uh, it was suggested that the woman should talk to a neonatologist like me to discuss what would the implications be if this baby actually survived? You know, what, what would it like What would, if the child had multiple disabilities like spina bifida or Down syndrome or some other brain abnormality? What, what would be the likely consequences for the child? So I would, here I am, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a Christian believer and I'm asked to go and talk to a woman who's considering having uh, an abortion. And, and the question is, how should I act responsibly and faithfully in in this situation Uh, as a doctor you know should I start off the conversation by saying well I just have to tell you right at the beginning that I'm a Christian and I believe uh, that every life is precious and 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 I believe that that what you're thinking about doing is completely wrong and immoral Um, I mean it's pretty obvious isn't it if I 
if I took that position, um, A, I would be in direct contravention of the, the rules of the General Medical Council of being a, a, a registered medical practitioner in terms of possibly coercing um, uh, my and, and abusing my professional role. But also it's pretty clear that it would be unlikely that we will be able to have a real open and honest discussion. So I one of the things that I... Uh, find helpful in thinking about this is to make a distinction between what my desires are uh, in in having this uh, in this conversation and what my goals are they're not the same thing so as a Christian my desires are that this lady that I'm talking to would be able to find compassion in her heart to be able to continue the pregnancy to love the baby even if the baby was profoundly disabled because I genuinely believe that's best both for her and best for the baby but my goals in this conversation are different my goals are that she should feel treated with respect with gentleness with compassion that I uh, empathize with her that I give her honest and accurate information that I that I don't that she doesn't feel judged or coerced or manipulated and I, I think that if at the end of the conversation, we've talked about this at length with, with the mother and so on, that if, if I go away and even if she then decides to have an abortion, I feel if I've achieved my goals, then, then I haven't failed. I don't feel a sense of failure. I may, I may feel sad, as I often did when I heard subsequently that an abortion had been carried out, but I didn't feel that I had failed in, in my role. Uh, to press you on that then um it, it sounds kind of worthy and and sensible but if we kind of boil the issue down to in any other context if there was an innocent life that was potentially that a, a person an adult came to you and said they were considering killing a child you would see your christian duty to do all you can to prevent them to to throw on all your persuasive ability to to use every argument possible and not obviously to coerce them but but to, but no, you wouldn't say, you know, well, if I go away and I find out that person went away and killed the child, I feel sad. No, I mean, like, we have a responsibility to stand up, do we not, for the vulnerable and, and the unborn child ultimately cannot defend themselves. They rely on adults outside to, to speak up and defend them on their behalf. Yeah, and of course you're right. Um, but I think I would argue there that the situation is much more clear cut, isn't it? Because it is not just totally immoral to destroy the life of an innocent child it's also a very severe serious crime carrying life imprisonment uh, in the laws of the country and uh, and my duty is to defend the laws of the country and defend um, defend the child when we're dealing with abortion certainly in the UK as it is at the moment uh, we're in a very different context we're in a context that we've already talked about a highly contested painful context and we're in a context in which it is legal um, for this woman to have an abortion and there is a, an entire legal and supported uh, abortion service providing this and then my duty in this very complex painful contested difficult space is to say how can I as a Christian act as salt and light in this in this area and of course I do believe and have supported people who have campaigned and, and I myself have been involved in campaigning to have the law uh, changed and speaking in public against um, uh, the um, this very liberal abortion policy um, but what, that's different from I, I, what I see as an incarnational role of me trying to be salt and light as a Christian professional within a medical system in which abortion is happening mm. and to just tie the conversation back to the kind of pregnancy crisis centers movement that we that we heard about last week at the kind of core of that is, is the idea of non-judgmental non-directive counseling where you know ultimately to put it in blunt terms if it turns out that the woman's true informed choice is to have an abortion the counselor does not make any effort to persuade them otherwise 
again some christians will hear that and say look i i get that you, you know it's legal in the uk we can't actually physically stop them if they want to do this but surely we could at least try and persuade them you know and you see at the more extreme end that's right that's why you see some people outside abortion clinics protesting with pictures of of fetuses and things like that and often quite emotive language and imagery to try and say like if if we can stop one woman from walking in that door then we've saved a life that's an immense good act how would you respond to that that kind of concern or criticism well i would certainly say that it's not for me to uh, criticize or judge other people um and i think we all have different roles and different callings uh in this big and complex area of trying to um promote and and and, and act in a christian way um but I would say that there is a calling for um, acting in this much more nuanced way. It's, it's, the problem with the traditional pro-life approach is, I think, as Sophie said last week, is that the natural assumption from anybody who, who approaches a, a, an openly Christian service, uh, for instance, a centre which is connected with the church, the natural assumption is that they are going to be met with precisely the kind of um, judgmental, uh, you know, what you are proposing to do is is completely immoral, and, and we cannot accept it. And um, and and I'm here to try and persuade you not to do it. Um, and unfortunately, in the current climate, that often comes across um, as coercive, and it it just accentuates this sense that Christians are are not compassionate, that they don't really understand the difficult situation I'm in and, and the complexities of the situation. Whereas, and Sophie said this last week, yes, if, if we look at Jesus in the way that he reaches out to people, you know, what was going on in first century Palestine in Jerusalem at the time with the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors and everything else, the prostitutes, the abortion services, was the equal of anything you would find in inner city London. Uh, here and now in the 21st century and yet what's striking is that is that we don't get um, recorded in the gospel Jesus uh, inveighing against the evil things that is happening that the Roman soldiers are doing that the prostitutes are doing that the abortionists are doing what we see is he reaching out with grace and truth that that there is compassion there is uh, empathy there is uh, a desire to to show the love of Christ without at the same time um, soft peddling the truth and so I, th I think it is this this mixture of grace and truth holding together uh, compassion and truth uh, it's sometimes said that truth without grace is destructive and damaging and and and, and, and can often be quite harmful grace without truth is powerless and ultimately a lie but where you have the combination of grace and truth then you have something very powerful very unusual and, and of course that is ultimately the character of christ himself i wonder if there's another perspective on this which is that um in the in a uk context as you say where abortion is a is a state provided service free to people as part of the national health service it's supported by all major political parties across the board there's wide social and political consensus to keep the law as it is protesting outside an abortion clinic uh, waving placards or, or offering highly kind of coercive and directive counseling doesn't actually save many lives whereas taking the kind of long game and saying if we as christians as the church become known as people who provide safe non-directive non-judgmental counseling we actually have the chance to reach more women who wouldn't be referred to us by gps if we were just kind of pro-life zealots um and therefore actually over the long run we we can lower the numbers of children aborted in the uk each year far more effectively by taking us kind of so quote unquote softer more moderate stance than if we kind of stuck to our our pro-life guns and, and and kind of lobbied parliament and and did all the rest yeah and i i think there is i i don't want to say one's better than the other i you know i want to support christians who who feel passionately about this issue and wish to be involved um, I would just want to argue that the kind of approach taken by Christian 
crisis pregnancies, this much more nuanced approach. And also the kind of approach taken by Christian doctors working in the NHS, again, a much more nuanced, a much more subtle approach, is is a Christian response. It, it, it's an authentically Christian response. Um, in other words, again, it's, it's uh, from a theological point of view, I think you can see there is both a prophetic role. The, the role of the prophet is to stand up in a public place and to speak truth and it's often to denounce isn't it if you look at the old testament prophets they are often denouncing the um the the evils of society but there is also we see in jesus who there was a prophetic element in jesus but we also see this incarnational um aspect in which jesus is almost it's just one of us a man like any other man walking among us and yet um uh, revealing to us the character of God in his compassion in his sensitivity in his love and and in his reaching out to the outcasts and some of us are called more to a incarnational role some of us are called more to a prophetic role and we, and we should rather than attack one another we should try to support and encourage one another well, there's lots more that could be said there, but I'm afraid we've uh, we've reached the end of this episode, um, end of our discussion. Um, I'm sure uh, people have lots of thoughts and, and would obviously value hearing any feedback or, or kind of comments or contributions to that discussion. Um, as always, you can you can get in touch with us by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk. Um, uh, also, there's more to read and, and kind of stimulate your own thinking on, on this question of abortion. Um, uh, on John's website uh, that's johnwyatt.com um, uh, but as ever thanks for listening um, and uh, we'll speak to you again next week You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable Unbelievable